This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Cowan. Welcome to the Cameron Journal Podcast. This is my first weekly news show in two and a half years, which is... It's been difficult to get ready to do this, and I've had some hesitation and some trepidation with doing it. In November of 2016, I closed the Cameron Cowan Show. For those that are uninitiated, from 2014 to 2016, I had a little thing called the Cameron Cowan Show on YouTube and had a weekly podcast, two videos a week, one podcast a week, and... uh, We had a lot of fun. I had a nice audience from all over the world. I got fan mail. Um, The the YouTube channel did did okay. It did not hugely great. I wasn't a Marky Miller or a PewDiePie, but it did all right. And um, yeah, we did that for two 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 and a half years. And uh, and then I then I walked away. And it's it's been almost three years in November. Um, If I'd waited two more months, it would be three years. Uh, and so it's been a difficult to get back into this, even earlier this week when I was pulling the news stories that I wanted to talk about, it was getting back into that routine, getting back into that place, starting to look for that content, getting back into that creative place um, has been difficult. <clears throat> also on this channel, in addition to the weekly news podcast, there are also produced episodes that are coming out. There's one available already on George about George Carlin, and there's another one coming up this week um, on Tuesday um, about the four-day work week. And there's going to be more coming, um, and I'm working on recording those. And those are scripted, they're edited, they have clips. It's a it's a very produced, very professional sort of thing. There's less ums and uhs and me coughing because I edit all that stuff out. Whereas this is more raw, like you're listening to the radio. So it's it's. It's been new, it's been different, I'm trying to get into it, I'm trying to get back into the place of doing a weekly news podcast, and it, it's been hard, it, it, there's, there was a lot of emotion when I closed the Cameron Cowan show, there was a lot of, of, oh, I really wish this had worked out, or I thought this was gonna be it, I thought I was, you know, I had a lot of hopes and dreams and all that sort of thing kind of placed in that, and I... I, I had to walk away from it, um, and it had to do with <clears throat> monetization, and it had to do with money and where I was at the time, and, and, and personally, <clears throat> I was very exhausted. Um, I had been working on major essays. I'd been running the, the blog. I had been doing a lot of stuff consistently for two, you know, for two years. I'd had blog posts every week. <clears throat> I'm sorry, every blog post every three days, a podcast every week, two videos. I would film six, eight to 16 videos a month um, sometimes. Um, and I went to Europe in that time. I was, I was pumping out a lot of content. And so personally, I was just really tired and I was really exhausted. And something really significant happened in my life at the time because I, um, I had gone to Colorado to help a friend, uh, work on selling her art. She's a famous artist. She owns a lot of really great stuff from a lot of really famous artists, modern artists, and a few not so modern artists. And that relationship ended up not working out um at that particular moment we remained friends for a short period of time thereafter and ultimately um kind of walked away which was like a divorce almost I mean in terms of the emotional intensity the barbs that we threw at each other um it, it was like a divorce <clears throat> it was the closest I've come as a non as a person who's ever been married it's the closest thing I've come to a divorce and um and I 
ended up uh, sitting in a hotel room in Fort Collins by myself, contemplating my life, contemplating my everything, and trying to figure out how to go on from there. And ultimately, I decided not to go on from there. And I decided to walk away and try my hand at normal employed life, um, which did not work out the way that I thought it was going to work out. Um, I didn't, I never realized how hard you could work and still be so horribly underpaid. And <clears throat> that was um, an eye opener and a changer for me. And in uh, November of last year, um, I had been looking for another job for a while and that hadn't really, that job search was not going well and I wasn't getting interviews or anything like that. And, uh, and I was just kind of like, it's time to make money for myself again. So I started a new thing called Rouge's Magazine, which we'll talk more about as, as time goes on. <clears throat> um, and... I, I got about the business of redesigning, reconcepting, and relaunching uh, my fiction career, certainly, and also blog and, and all of this stuff. And one of the things that people missed most when I shut down the Cameron Cowan show was the weekly news podcast. Um, people really enjoyed that. That was the one thing people wish I hadn't given up. I think I probably if I had kept doing the weekly news podcast, people would have been very happy with me. Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, so I decided that in this new concept of things, I would bring back the one product people really liked and really wanted me to bring back. And that was the weekly news podcast. So, um, yes, there's a lot of things happening. Um, on October 1st, I have my first nonfiction book coming out. It's called What the Hell is Going On? And... It is a collection of some of the really big, important essays that I wrote when I was doing the Cameron Cowan show. Um, and some of them were quite blockbusters. A, few, a couple of them were quite popular. I've also added two brand new essays on the education system and on racism. So the whole book is very accessible. I've broken it down so you can use it as a handbook. It is a primer for understanding our world in the age of Trump and realizing that we are living in the context of stories that are decades old. Trump is not the progenitor of these problems and he's not the solution to them. And so the, it's really a, a guidebook to different issues and I've, I've broken down all the sections. So if there's one particular thing that you want to think about and work on, or there's another particular thing that you want to read about or share with someone, I've broken it all down on the table of contents, page by page, so it's very accessible, it's easy to read and get through, it's not a problem at all. <clears throat> so, uh, that is exciting, that's there, that's happening, uh, it's going to be available on October 1st, it will be available at my site CameronJournal.com, and I'm working on retail relationships right now as well, so... Um, and it will be on Amazon, and, and it will be also in EPUB form on Amazon and Kobo. It will be on every electronic platform, um, and it will also be on Amazon. So, uh, yeah, and I'm also, I will be working on an audiobook version of it, um, which I will get done as soon as I get the videos for the book done. So um, be looking for that um, in the coming months. That'll be really exciting as well. And I will release snippets of the audiobook on this podcast channel as well. So I think that's the personal updates. That's been nine minutes of that already. We will not have so many personal updates in the future. Um, but nine minutes of that, let us jump into the news. The first story I want to talk about is actually about a, a five-part docu-series that I watched on Netflix and thought was fantastic. And if you haven't watched it, you need to. It's called The Family. And I'm looking at a National Review article right now. And the Family docu-series was really fascinating because it goes through 
very consistently through the eyes of someone who was on the inside <clears throat> of the evangelical Christian control over GOP politics. Now, when I was involved in GOP politics, evangelical Christians were such a huge part of the GOP that um, any candidate, even at the local level, if they didn't have evangelical Christian support, as a Republican, they just were not um, going to get very, very far. And it also talks about the mental gymnastics that a lot of Christian leaders who are still supporting Trump, still wedded to Trump, the mental gymnastics they have gone through in order to uh, support President Trump, who obviously has a pretty reprehensible character. Here in the story, it says, in truth, many Christians on the right are critical of Trump's character and excluding their voices to frame all people who support conservative policy as Machiavellian is incredibly dishonest. That being said, evangelical Christians seem to let uh, Trump get away with a, a great deal. And a lot of that has to do in the family of what they call ministering to wolves and also making use of imperfect vessels. And then they've used select parts of the Bible to get away with this very particularly. So um, the, the leader and start and kind of founder of the group was a guy named Doug Coe, C-O-E. He was an ordained Presbyterian elder and lay minister who died in 2017 and the family's job was to get uh, leaders to not even just like be Christian, but just to believe in in Jesus and the Jesus story. <clears throat> um, and he had kind of a, a special Bible where this was just Jesus printed on the front, where it was kind of focused on on these passages that promote you know good Christian leadership, but trusting in leadership above all. And what they talk about is they say, you know, anyone can love the sheep, but who's going to love the wolf eating the sheep? And Doug Coe's idea was to love the wolf and to minister to the wolf and minister to those who had been given power due to their innate belief that if God gave you power, God must favor you. This is the power version of uh, the prosperity gospel. Same idea. Um but uh, only to do with, with power. And there's a certain mafia-esque flair to the whole thing that I think is very, very, very interesting. Um, and there's also kind of a, a recruitment method that I'm somewhat familiar with from Teen Pack that I think is also very interesting. And they use stories like David and Bathsheba to demonstrate how a leader might be imperfect, like Trump, but that through ministering to them, they can help them become better people or simply use them to do God's work, although they may be an imperfect vessel. So the whole idea is that, you know, for those that are not familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, I will walk you through it quickly. Hang on. David and his best friend Jonathan, Jonathan's wife Bathsheba, David catches sight of her bathing in the nude um, in, their, in their house near the, near the palace. And, and David desires Bathsheba. He's like, I'm going to get me some of that. And so David plots to to get with Bathsheba, and, and D David decides to, <clears throat> to sleep with Bathsheba. Uh, to cover up his sin of sleeping with his best friend's wife, he tells his soldiers that when they go into battle the next day to have his, his best friend uh, be at the front line, you know, to ensure that he would, you know, die quickly so David could get a hold of his wife. And, uh, and so the, and then of course the story goes, David and Bathsheba got together, which also, um, I believe most of that's cataloged. No, that Song of Solomon is, is, is Solomon the King, Queen of Sheba, but, um, David in the Psalms writes about Bathsheba, all this sort of thing. And, and they, they get together and the rest is, the rest is history. Um, and, and David still was, was king. Everything was fine. He just did something really awful all in the name of getting, um, getting some love from Bathsheba. So 
they use this story over and over again as an idea of you may be in leadership, you may be in a position of power, you may do something bad, you may do something that is not good, but God can still use you for good. God can work through imperfect vessels. And one of the two, um, one of the two things where this is reflected is in two stories that they cover in the show. One of former Nevada Senator John Ensign and South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford, um, both fourth out of office when they cheated on their wives. Um, Mark Sanford was actually the, the missing governor for a while. Um, he was supposed to be hiking on the Appalachian Trail. He ended up being found in Argentina with his mistress. Um, it was... Uh, it, it was it was quite a quite a interesting scenario. They both of them used that same David and Bathsheba story, that same parable about you know power and and redemption and all this type of thing. Um, oftentimes, publicly in in defense of themselves, the show also shows you know the the this group, the family influences people like senators and governors and this sort of thing. They had a house on uh, in Washington, D.C. where these congressmen and senators would live together, supposedly in community, in love of accountable Christian men, all this sort of thing. Um, but it was also known as one of the most influential places in Washington. The influence of this group, not only for the intellectual gymnastics they went through in order to justify the questionable behavior of some of these so-called great Christian leaders, like Trump, but also the amount of influence the family wields becomes critical in the show because you end up with this scenario where they are just having outstanding amounts of influence on policy. Their fingers reach to getting gay anti-gay legislation passed in Uganda. Supposedly they may have been partially involved in the Camp David Accords between Israel and Egypt and trying to make that make that happen. And most importantly, they're also um the organization behind the National Prayer Breakfast, which has become one of the most influential places to make deals in Washington. Anybody who's anybody who's anybody ends up going to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington and, you know, how legislation is going to work, how things are going to work, it all goes down at the National Prayer Breakfast, interestingly enough. And so it, it's the, the wide-reaching power of this group is tremendous because not only are they recruiting, you know, young men to take in positions of power and marry the right women and do all the right sort of Christian things and become these great Christian leaders, but also they're influencing people who already have the reins of power and grouping them together, um, influencing them to back certain pieces of legislation. And this all happens so far behind the scenes. There's no way we as the public could ever possibly know what their true influence over policy and politics might be or why some pieces of legislation or proposals fail simply because perhaps the family was against it. Um, and their use of the personal nature of the lives of these senators, congressmen, governors, and others to, uh, to influence them or perhaps indeed blackmail them. Um, the, the reach of that is unknown. And certainly their influence is felt every year at the National Prayer Breakfast when they host a religious gathering, but that is the most absolutely powerful place of meeting in all of Washington. That's power. That's, that's real power. And it's, it's impressive. It's impressive. I, I'm not surprised given the close relationship of the Republican party and religion together. When you watch the documentary, the reason why evangelicals don't attract Trump really starts to make sense and why they don't do so loudly really starts to make sense. And it's, it's really fascinating. And you're kind of like, oh, okay, I see that they... In this case, power has trumped religion. And I think that's particularly fascinating that somehow power has managed to trump religion. And Trump has trumped religion. Ha ha ha. I did not intend to do that.
It's fascinating. It's fascinating how, how they did that. It's it's weird. Um, but it, a lot of what goes on in the Republican Party in regards to evangelicals starts to make a whole lot of sense. It's mildly disturbing. It, it's organizations like this that would have the Founding Fathers turning over in their graves. If you have not watched this docu-series, you should. Very seriously, you should. It's absolutely fascinating. A lot of things that go on with modern politics start to make sense when you understand the wide-reaching effect of these types of organizations. So, moving right along, um, this next story is going to be far away from what we've, we've just been talking about. Uh, we will come back to politics shortly. I have an update on Brexit that's coming up, and we're going to get into a little bit of 2020 stuff, um, including Julian Castro's new climate plan, uh, Joe Manchin not running for governor of West Virginia, um, and some other things. But I want to jump in to the world of... Um, I do want to jump into the world of celebrity news for a moment. So Ariana Grande recently canceled um, all of her meet and greets for her recent tour um, due to depression and other mental health issues. Interestingly enough, um, and her mental health has been a contention for a while, Justin Bieber came out with a really great Instagram post to explain what it's like to be young and famous. And I think it's it's really fascinating because he really talks about what, you know, Ariana Grande has been famous and has been in the public eye since she was a young teenager. She was on Nickelodeon for a while, and now she's released three albums. She's done world tours. One of the biggest mass shootings in UK history was at one of her concerts, and we know that hung on her greatly. Her ex-boyfriend committed suicide last year. The, the poor woman has been through the ringer, and while her career has been blowing up, her personal life has been crazy. And Justin Bieber wrote a really touching post about that, and he, he says, um, I was suddenly 18 with no skills in the real world, with millions of dollars and access to whatever I wanted. He said, I started doing pretty heavy drugs at 19 and abused all my relationships. I became resentful, disrespectful to women, and angry. He said that he made them all become distant to everyone who loved him. This is a Daily Caller article for those that care. And he started hiding behind a shell of a person that he had become. He said, I, he said that he felt like he could never turn it around. Quote, it's taken me years to bounce back from all the terrible decisions, fix broken relationships, and change relationship habits. Uh, later, he praised God for blessing him with, quote, extraordinary people who love him, and he's now in the best season of his life with marriage, which he says is a crazy new responsibility, where he's learning patience, trust, commitment, kindness, humility, and all the things it looks like to be a good man. And he encouraged others to uh, have faith in themselves and deal with their own mental health issues. I think a lot of people are not necessarily sympathetic to uh, the plight of young stars and young singers who get famous at a young age, get rich at a young age, and are able to kind of live a sort of charmed life. And not realizing that sometimes there's unaddressed mental health issues especially when when you're young and you're doing a lot of things and you're working really hard sometimes you you don't have the time and space to even understand what you're feeling or understand what's going on much less take the time to develop you know time to deal with your mental health issues i mean how many of us who had perfectly ordinary childhoods all this type of thing took the time to deal with our mental health issues most people don't show up in therapy till 30 35 and that's, you know, they've been through their 20s and all the craziness of relationships and they've gotten married and all this type of thing. And then suddenly they start working on themselves and trying to change themselves and all this type of thing. Um, particularly, you know, if they might have gotten a divorce, whatever have you. All of a sudden people start showing up in therapy. They start showing up in spiritual work. All these things start happening. And... So I think it's very difficult to be young, be super famous, have all these obligations, and to somehow, in the midst of being 19, 20, with tons of attention, paparazzi hounding you, you know, women or men throwing themselves at you, not, not able to leave your house without 
crowds following you, all this sort of thing, and then also have to do, do with mental health issues. And I've never met a creative person that doesn't have some sort of mental health issue. Um, to have to deal with all of that is just, it's truly difficult and it's truly hard. And it's something where, quite honestly, you know, the, probably the best thing at this stage of the game is for Ariana Grande to take some time off. She has been rapid fire with the album. She has been rapid fire with the tours and the videos on the award shows, you know, all this sort of thing. She probably just really needs to take five minutes, sit down and not do anything and, you know, work on herself and get back to herself and just have, you know, blocks of time where she can just not deal with the world around her. Um... And that's, you know, she just needs a mental health break, really and truly. And fortunately, she's at a place in her career where she can she can do that. Um, whether the label's going to allow that sort of thing to happen or whether, you know, others are going to allow that to happen is a difficult, difficult thing to tell. But I found his message to be really touching and really inspiring. And it, I think it gives us all something to think about to think about with young celebrities and fame and also our own mental health issues. And if you're, if you're having mental health issues, if you're not feeling okay, don't be afraid to seek out professional help. Don't be afraid to seek out other people. Don't be afraid to, uh, to, you know, get help for mental health issues. Even if you're super young, I, I don't imagine people that are terribly young listen to this podcast. Um, but if you are, never be afraid to seek out help, really and truly. And and we need to create a culture where it's okay to do that. For too long, we have not... We have viewed people who are dealing with mental health as some sort of, some sort of broken or something wrong with them. And that... Um, and, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. Really and truly, that couldn't be farther from the truth. And, and we need to embrace... We need to em embrace people with mental health issues, even if they're famous. They deserve love too incidentally enough so shifting gears while we're on the topic of pop culture uh we'll shift gears over to youtube i have a pair of stories here that's very interesting i'm currently working on a post called youtube is broken and here is why um and so i also want to talk about it here because two interesting things have have happened youtube has a very kind of interesting content problem um, and one of the content problems has to do with the algorithm and the recommendations and subscriptions and all that type of thing and monetization. And I'm going to save that for the blog post. Keep an eye at cameronjournal.com for that. It'll be out this month. Um, however, the two stories I want to talk about this week is the FTC imposing a historic fine of $170 million for YouTube's violation of the U.S. Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA. From TechCrunch.com, it says here the settlement agreement will put increased responsibility on both YouTube and content creators themselves to properly identify any child-directed content on the platform as YouTube is now prohibited from collecting personal data from viewers of any of those videos. Creators who fail to comply with this new requirement may be penalized directly, the FTC revealed at a press conference at the date of this writing. This could include both civil penalties and their removal from the platform. The specific consequences were not detailed in by the FTC or by YouTube, um, and they're supposed to serve to put the creator community on notice. Uh, basically, what is going on here is that content that is made specifically for children, you're not allowed to collect data from those children, um, and this basically finding YouTube for this going on, and it says, and YouTube says it will limit data collection on child-directed content and will stop serving personalized ads on the videos. It will also turn off comments and notifications on these children's videos. Um, and, you, and YouTube creators will have to check a box to say if their content is aimed at children in order to meet the new uh, guidelines. It says it's also going to use machine learning techniques to identify other child-related content, like videos featuring kids' characters, toys, and games, and it will then make those things children content as well, and will limit data collection taking place on those as well. So, um, so that's all kind of happening there, and I think that's very important, especially you know, kids, a lot of kids watch YouTube content. A lot of parents have their kids watching YouTube content. There's a lot of creators that create very specific YouTube content. 
Um, and and they, they do all sorts of crazy things in terms of... They, the, they sometimes do, like, stop-motion animation stuff. Sometimes they do, you know, full-on animation stuff. Uh, sometimes they, they do different things that are all kind of directed... Directed at, at children... And certainly, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily want, you know, children's data being collected. This, the fine of $170 million is not that big. Um, it'll be interesting to see how YouTube handles that content moving forward, which goes into my second news story this week. Um, it says here, YouTube, according to Mashable, YouTube removed more hate speech than ever last quarter, but still has a lot of work to do says here, in a post on its official blog on Tuesday, YouTube announced that thanks to its new hate speech policy, the company removed five times the number of videos and channels it did in the first quarter of 2019. More than 100,000 videos and 17,000 channels were taken down between April and June of this year for violating YouTube's hate speech policy. The company also states that comment deletion doubled this quarter as well. YouTube attributed the removal of more than 500 million comments largely to its new hate speech policy. Now, um, the, the hate speech policy has been controversial for a variety of reasons because oftentimes videos that are talking about the hate speech of others will get caught up in the hate speech filters, realizing that it's not, the video itself is not hate speech, they're talking about the hate speech of others. And YouTube is trying to catch up because there are a lot of people and things have been allowed to kind of continue on saying things, posting videos, all this type of thing without any real consequences. And... There's more to this story, and then I'll, I'll get my take on it. It says here, Critics are quick to point out that YouTube still has much work to do. In August, the Anti-Defamation League released a list of active YouTubers that create white supremacist and anti-Semitic content on the video streaming site. YouTube initially took action against four of the channels, removing them from the platform. However, the company later reversed course and reinstated some of the channels, including one belonging to the net white nationalist outlet VDARE. Bad faith actors, such as Alex Jones, who has been previously banned from the service, also recently took advantage of YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki's most recent letter to creators. Wojcicki explained in her letter that the company's commitment to openness would allow for controversial or offensive content. Shortly after, Jones's Infowars relaunched its War Room channel on the platform. However, YouTube later removed the channel, once again citing policy violations. Here's the thing with content. And YouTube content. Um, I'm a firm believer in freedom of speech. We may not like all the speech that comes out, but I am nevertheless a firm believer in that people should, broadly speaking, have the right to say what they want to and that we should battle them in the arena of ideas and not just simply censor them. The other problem with YouTube's new content policy is there's a lot of other creators that are getting caught up in all these new rules and regulations, and that is not necessarily a positive, a positive thing. Um, on over on Rouge's this month, we posted a video from a favorite channel um, of ours called "What's the Safe Word," where they talk about the struggles that LGBT creators are have getting past the algorithm, having their videos monetized, um, and not having their videos age restricted, um, even though there's nothing that would be problematic for minors in the video. Um, in fact, one of their arguments is that sex education is an important part of teenage education, um, and education of all humans, quite frankly. Um, and they're actually currently suing YouTube, um, for the way their content has been treated and the loss of money that they've had from having their content consistently demonetized and or age restricted, um, making it difficult for people to find the content in question. I don't, I do not think, I think it is convenient for people to say that platforms should pick and choose and decide what content to have on their platform. However, the problem is when you start picking and choosing and when you start deciding by what standard, who decides that, um, what is hate speech today could be important political rebellion tomorrow. Um, if the positions were reversed, you know, if YouTube was saying we're not going to have any black people on the platform 
or we're not going to have any gay people on the platform, or we're going to get rid of things that promote homosexuality, or the things that are that defend Islam, or that defend Christianity, or that don't go along with Christian values, there would be riots in the streets. People would, justifiably so, be complaining that that censorship. The reverse is also true. We cannot claim that we are for free speech and openness while restricting the speech of some people, even if we do not like it, even if we might consider it dangerous. Unless someone is specifically going out and committing a crime, which is worthy of being stopped, we, we cannot play the censorship game. Because once you start playing the censorship game, it goes downhill very quickly. And it, it, it's, it's defensive in its nature. <coughs> I say that we should not play the censorship game because we could be the ones being censored next. That's the reason why I say that. Do I like things that white supremacist channels say? Of course not. Do I like the things that some of these channels say? Of course I don't. I don't like racism or anti-Semitism more than the next person. I don't like anti-gay ideology more than the next person. I don't. But when we start playing the censorship game, everyone loses. And it's a very sad day when we start trying to censor people in their content. It, it gets very difficult very fast. And soon, all sorts of things and people could be censored. And I find that just simply to be unacceptable in what's supposed to be a free society. I don't know how YouTube is going to handle this moving forward. I don't even know if they're doing the right thing the way they're doing it necessarily but they certainly have a basic obligation to allow their platform to be as open as possible and make sure that people can find the content that they're interested in and i don't think youtube should try to play favorites with it i don't like alex jones i think most of what he says is, is lies provable lies but should he be restricted from saying it is there a direct harm to people? I think that's a hard argument to make. That's a very hard argument to make. Our next story, we're going to dive into a little bit more serious politics now. Um, because we're going to dive into... <clears throat> we're going to dive into um, some things in Washington... Um, we're going to dive into the uh, McConnell's issue with being called Moscow Mitch, which I think is pretty funny. But uh, in, in this article from The Hill, McConnell says, Over-the-top Moscow Mitch nickname is an effort to smear him. Apparently he's never cared that President Trump smears people. Says here in the story from The Hill, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, on Tuesday vehemently denounced political opponents who have dubbed him Moscow Mitch, calling the nickname an over-the-top effort to smear him. Quote, it's modern-day McCarthyism, unquote, McConnell said during a radio interview on Salem Media Group's Hugh Hewitt show. When asked about the nickname, he received after blocking Democrats' efforts to pass bipartisan election security bills. Quote, unbelievable for a cold warrior like me who spent a career standing up to the Russians to be given a moniker like that. He goes on to say, you know, I can laugh about things like Grim Reaper, but calling me Moscow Mitch is over the top, the Kentucky senator added, before suggesting that Democrats would, quote, say anything and do anything. This is what we're up against with the hard left today in America, he said. McConnell faced heavy scrutiny following his decision in July to block requests from Democratic senators to pass bills aimed at strengthening America's election infrastructure by unanimous consent. The move came a day after former special counsel Robert Mueller publicly warned that Russia was trying to interfere in the 2020 elections, quote, as we sit here. Former GOP lawmaker and MSNBC host Joe Scarborough repeatedly referred to McConnell as Moscow Mitch following the decision. The nickname quickly went viral among Democrats, with Speaker Nancy Pelosi referring to the Kentucky senator as Moscow Mitch last month. I love this. I think it's hilarious. The Moscow Mitch thing is the best thing ever. One of the reasons why I love it is because for the longest time, Trump has gotten away with every nickname. He's been able to go around and do whatever he wanted to do with people, 
And people have decided to put up with it. And now the Republicans are getting a taste of their own medicine. And I think it's fantastic. <clears throat> it's wonderful. Go for it. Keep going with it. Because this is literally, the I think, the only way you can really get to Republicans. Like, of all the things that have been done and all the ways <clears throat> that the Republicans have gone with things and, and policies over the last couple of years since Trump was reelected. The only thing, drink of water, the only thing that has really gotten to them is when you start in with the nicknames and the personal attacks. And it's funny because they always try to claim that, oh, this is undignified and all this type of thing. When has that ever mattered to them? One iota in the whole conversation that has been going on nationally for the past two and a half, almost three years. When? When has dignity of office ever mattered? When has that ever restrained Trump, or quite frankly, many of them, from saying and doing whatever they wanted? And now their own chickens have come home to roost. And I think it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious. Not everything is so great in politics. <clears throat> um, I have a story here from The Intercept. Uh, Joe Manchin, who's Democrat of West Virginia, um, has decided not to run for governor in West Virginia. Um, he announced that uh, last well, announced it last Tuesday. Um, the someone is going to challenge billionaire Republican Governor Jim Justice. Um, however, the person who's most likely to do it now is a gentleman by the name of Stephen Smith. It says here at The Intercept, he's 39 years old. He's a community organizer who's running a progressive populist campaign like no other in the state's history. It says here, Smith's anti-establishment campaign, dubbed West Virginia Can't Wait, recently outraised all of its Republican opponents, including the incumbent combined, entirely through small-dollar donations. And in late July, his campaign became the first in West Virginia history to unionize, ratifying a collective bargaining agreement with Campaign Workers Guild. <clears throat> it says here, West Virginia needs a movement, not a king, Smith's campaign said in a statement following Joe Manchin's announcement. No elected official, not Jim Justice, not Joe Manchin, not me, can save us. We have to save ourselves. So while the media and the political class were watching the soap opera unfold, our volunteers were busy building a people's political machine around the state. Smith supporters point to Paul Jean Swearingen, an environmental activist who challenged Manchin from the left in 2018, as evidence <clears throat> of the desire for real grassroots opposition within the state. <clears throat> Though Manchin won the primary election, Swearingen managed to win 30% of the vote with virtually no name recognition and only $179,000. Manchin, who's been the state's most prominent Democrat for decades, has voted with Trump's agenda more than 60% of the time. He's a staunch ally of the fossil fuel industry, supports the border wall, once shot the cap-and-trade climate bill with a rifle, and was the lone Democrat to vote for the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Manchin's decision not to run for governor was so last-minute that his communications director wrote two different statements and didn't know which one the senator would use on Tuesday morning, according to the New York Times. He similarly teased a potential gubernatorial run in 2016 before deciding against it and throwing his support behind Justice, who was a Democrat at the time. <clears throat> this is emblematic, this story out of West Virginia, is emblematic of, I think, part of the change that is happening in this country. It is... <clears throat> it is something where I think when you begin to go to people and address their needs and you explain how government can do a better job of actually addressing the needs of people where they are in their communities, you'd be surprised how people respond to that because it's, it's just a little matter of government is a huge, massive machine. But when someone comes along and says, look, you have this problem. We actually care about solving that problem. Let's work to solve that problem. 
that's a whole different political conversation. That's not coming along and being like, oh, well, I've helped this and I've done that and we've created these jobs and all this type of thing. That doesn't necessarily help people where they are. It could be a nice fact to say, but it's not actually looking at what... <clears throat> about what is actually helping people. And that conversation oftentimes goes outside of helping create jobs, which is more often a handout to big corporations. It goes beyond, oh, yeah, we've, we are funding this more, I got this grant or whatever have you. It actually involves listening and figuring out what do people want, what do they want their community to look like, what type of community do they want to live in, and how can that be created. <clears throat> and that is something that the progressive movement has started to do in a really interesting way. And I think it, it was proven in 2018, and I think it will be proven in 2020. That is the way forward. Figure out what people want and find a way to make that happen and use the levers of government to make sure that no one in this country has to live in a really terrible or awful way just because of their socioeconomic consideration or how or where they were born or who they were born to or how poor they were born or all this type of thing. We can do better. And progressive populism, all of Bernie Sanders, all of Elizabeth Warren, is our chance to do better. We can do better and we should do better. It's an embarrassment that our country is the way it is. We should be, as Americans, we should be embarrassed that we have people living in tents and living in their cars. People have no access to health care. We should be embarrassed. There's no reason we should have to live in a country where that type of thing goes on. We shouldn't have to. And yet, we do. Despite the fact that companies are not paying taxes, they oftentimes get money back, they're being subsidized, and an, an increasingly small number of people are forced to bear the burden we all should make sure that everyone has a decent access to health care, education, and housing. It's really just that simple. And for a country as wealthy as ours to not have that basic assurance for everyone is an embarrassment. And we can do better. And we should do better. So I hope Mr. Smith does well in West Virginia. I think it'll be very interesting to see how that race turns out in the future. Now, <clears throat> as we get in to uh, kind of some more interesting political stuff. I found this small little story. We're not going to dig into it super deep because there's not much to, to, to dig into. But um, <coughs> South Dakota, the South Dakota Democrats are shutting down all their offices. This is a very odd thing, but it's this kind of a snippet story from the week. It says here, things are looking pretty bad, bad for South Dakota Democrats. The party is closing its last two offices in the state by the end of September, South Dakota Democratic Party Chair Paula Hawkins tells the Argus Leader. The move will leave Democrats without a physical office in the entire state, a dire turn for a party that nearly won the governor's seat last year. <clears throat> that goes on to talk about how much... They've been spending on rent. They can't raise enough money, even though the DNC gives them $10,000 a month. And it's a huge major blow. They have had um, Democrat senators in the past. Uh, Claire McCaskill. I'm sorry, she's from Missouri. <clears throat> Heidi Heitkamp <clears throat> um, was, uh, was, just, uh, was just voted out in 2016. Um, and... Uh, it's, 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 I'm sorry, she's from North Dakota, I'm sorry, it's, it, I got my facts, got wrong senators in wrong places. I wanted to be Claire McCaskill and I wanted to be Heidi Heitkamp. Heidi Heitkamp's in North Dakota and Claire McCaskill's in Missouri. Let's read the story. It's a major blow for a state that had Democratic senator until the beginning of 2015. There we go. Senator Tim Johnson was elected three consecutive times before he retired and was replaced by Senator Mike Rounds in the 2014 election. While Senator John Thune replaced the Democrat in 2005, Rounds and Thune both handily beat the Democratic opponents by more than 20 points in the last Senate races. And yet, just last year, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem only won her race by a little over 10,000 votes. I think that's interesting. Democrats are pulling out of South Dakota. That, uh, is... That is an interesting... Something to keep an eye on. It'll be interesting to see how that affects, um... <clears throat> 
presidential politics and if the DNC is willing to invest more money to get a presence in South Dakota again. That will be very, very interesting. Let's see. <clears throat> Ooh, let's move on to this. Another one from the week. Marianne Williamson. Now, I, I have this story labeled as the curious case of Marianne Williamson. For those of you who may not have been following the presidential politics closely, one of the candidates for the 2020 Democrat nomination is a California author by the name of Marianne Williamson. Good old Marianne is has been an author of several books of spiritual in nature. Um, she's involved in A Course in Miracles and other such spiritual books. She made a name for herself at the first two Democratic debates um, by talking about uh, sick care rather than health care and also talking about how she could conquer the country and Trump with love over hate. And it says here uh, that her campaign reportedly thinks she was quote-unquote swift-boated, which is an old term from John Kerry 2004. Um, and if you want to, I don't have time to go into that, what that means, but go give Swift Boated a Google because it's a fascinating thing that happened in the 2004 election. Here we go. She says, or her staff says, the self-help guru turned 2020 candidate gave unexpectedly standout performances in the Democratic debates, earning her a whirlwind of media coverage. But then came the quotes painting Williamson as everything from anti-science to a fat shamer, leading her campaign manager to speculate she was, quote, swift-boated by someone who felt threatened by her, unquote. Williamson gave a head-turning performance in the first and second Democratic debates, providing endlessly quotable answers about how love will win the presidency and how President Trump was stirring up a dark psychic force in the country. With the resurrection of her tweets suggesting antidepressants lead to suicide, and quotes from her books describing how sickness is an illusion, stopped any momentum she might have had. Williamson's campaign manager, Patricia Ewing, saw a pattern in those attacks, leading her to say she thought that someone was conducting oppo research against Williamson per the Times. Williamson's controversial ideas were meant for a self-selecting crowd of spiritual seekers, people who understand the metaphors and know how to derive wisdom from them. In the hands of, quote, anti-vax nuts and science crusaders, they'd been distorted, and it all piled up into Williams's eventual rejection from the next round of Democratic debates, an overt and covert message to political outsiders like herself to go home, as Williamson put it. I'm not surprised that this happened to her. She was a true outsider. She had interesting policies. She was really kind of... To the, to the left, you know, not quite to the left of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but comfortably between them. If the attacks were consistent and it was based on Oppo research, I could see Liz Warren doing that. I could also see Bernie Sanders doing that. Those two were already having a fight between themselves. They didn't need a third. Quite honestly. They just didn't need a third. <clears throat> They didn't need a third to, to to deal with that, and they didn't need her peeling away votes and support from them. I also could potentially see Kamala Harris doing that. Uh, Sanders and Warren have far more support. They're kind of more up in the Joe Biden sphere um, than Kamala Harris, who was out of the single digits, did the second debate, fell back into the single digits. I could see... <clears throat> To make sure that the debate stage would be more loaded, I could also see her doing it. Um, I think it's a kind of an interesting thing that the Williamson campaign was not more prepared for that scrutiny. Um, they didn't clean up her Twitter account. Uh, they, you know, didn't have prepared statements and a prepared program to talk about um, what she'd written in her books and some of the comments and things that she had said. So, the f when you run for president, it's a very, it's a very uh, intense process. You come under a lot of scrutiny. Everything you've said, everything you've done, your family, everything comes under a microscope with a really bright light. And... Not everybody is ready for that type of scrutiny. And clearly, Marianne Williamson wasn't ready.
I mean, that's what we can conclude, is that Marianne Williamson just was not ready for the level of scrutiny um, that was required to run for president. And I think that is... That's depressing. She's been pushed out of the next debate, which is on September 12th. Um which is just next week. Um, I will be live tweeting the debate um, on Twitter at Cameron Cowan. Um, I live tweet all the debates. Um, I'm contemplating streaming the debates if I can find an easy way to do it. Um, I haven't had the camera set up in a little while, so I don't know about that. But I will be for sure live tweeting the debate um, from right here in my office. So, and I usually send out commentary and things that are setting going on, you know, minute by minute by minute. And I tweet out stuff from other people, from other political commentators. Um, if, if you're doing a debate and you want someone to help you get through it, I'm one of the best accounts to follow. So definitely come see me at Cameron Cowan. Um, if you're not on Twitter, um, you can see my tweets publicly. <clears throat> so you needn't sign up. But if you want to interact, have fun, ask questions, um, you know, make sure to have a Twitter account and do follow. So, and I do follow listeners back. So if you're, you know, got a picture and have something interesting to say, I might just follow you back. So... Uh, while we're on 2020 politics, um, Julian Castro released his new climate plan today. Um, he outlines an economic guarantee for fossil fuel workers amid transition to clean energy. In this little story, it says that he's trying to raise his mediocre environmental rating. Uh, Greenpeace gives the 2020 candidate a C grade, placing him 13th out of 20 Democratic hopefuls. But Castro's new climate plan, released one day ahead of CNN's Town Hall on Climate, which took place on September 5th, could change his grade. Castro's plan consists of an array of ideas, including passing civil rights legislation to prevent environmental discrimination, establishing a new legal category of climate refugees, forming a national climate council, stopping fossil fuel extraction from public lands. <clears throat> Castro, however, also seeks to provide an economic guarantee for fossil fuel workers. A Castro administration, as the plan outlines, will be dedicated to transitioning the country to renewable energy in order to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2045. But in doing so, it would also help coal, oil, and gas workers, many of whom have already lost their jobs, gain financial security. Among those guarantees would be health care and disability benefits, including programs like Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. Castro would also defend pensions for mine workers and aid communities affected by fossil fuel plant shutdowns through economic and educational assistance programs. <clears throat> it has a helpful link to the plan. Um, which we're not going to dig into super much right now. Um, you know, it's it's a plan ahead of the next debate, which I think is pretty <clears throat> fun and exciting. Um, it is... It, it makes sense. It's pretty much in line with what everyone else is, <clears throat> is suggesting. So I'm not, I'm not terribly... Uh, I'm not, you know, it's not, there's nothing terribly surprising or shocking. Um, it's very similar to Kamala Harris's climate plan. It's pretty similar to Elizabeth Warren's plan. Um, it, it's, when it comes to climate in this country, <clears throat> as Buttigieg said last night, with, um, with, at the CNN Town Hall on Climate Change, literally, you have, one party who's trying to have a discussion about what do we do about this and how are we going to save people's jobs and how are we going to deal with all these problems. And you have another party who's just kind of like, problem? No problem. No, no problem here. Nothing wrong here. All this sort of thing. No, no problem. Everything's fine. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult discussion to have. Um, when you have one half of the debate who doesn't even want to acknowledge that there's a problem in, involved. And, and there there are some issues with climate science and how climate science has been tracked. And it's, it's hard because we're trying to write public policy on something that we do not have enough data about. And if you want to read how I came to that conclusion, my book comes out on October 1st. Um, go jump and read the climate change essay. But um, we are... Uh, 
that that that's it's a very difficult debate. But his plan is in line, and making sure that those displaced by these economic change is a good process. And indeed, as the economy changes in other ways through AI and automation, that type of model will be needed again in the future for sure. It is coming up to an hour. I had a whole bunch more stories planned, including an update on Brexit. <clears throat> and we're just not, we're not going to get to it this week, unfortunately, because um, an hour is quite long enough and we have to stop. So I'm going to hang on to those stories that are still relevant. We'll talk about them next week on the Cameron Journal uh, podcast. And uh, I hope you have a, a really good week. Have a great weekend. Uh, be well. If you have a news story you would like me to cover, um, head over to CameronJournal.com and uh, send it in to me, and I will prioritize it and make sure to cover it um, in incoming shows. Welcome back to the Cameron Journal podcast. Welcome back to me. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk soon. like to catch up with me, catch me on Twitter at Cameron Cowan. Visit CameronJournal.com for new blog posts every week. And feel free to find me on Facebook or all your favorite social media platforms. Until next time, this is the Cameron Journal Podcast, and I'm Cameron Cowan.